Well, good morning. Welcome to East Lake Online, and happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. And if you uh, leverage whatever uh, influence you had this morning to get your kids to watch church with you online, kudos to you. I can't think of a better gift uh, than watching church online with uh, with your mom. And uh, it's probably way better than that coloring they gave you earlier today. And if you did get one of those, uh, great job, kids. I'm just kidding about all of that. We are on part four of a series uh, that we started because we found ourselves in the midst of uh, sort of a quandary, actually a, a pandemic to be precise. Um, asking ourselves the question, well, where do we go sort of from here and what does flourishing look like now? We, we have more uncertainty than ever before. And uh, so, so we're just trying to say, um, you know, we've always been taught, here's the vision of the good life. And, and we just showed the idea of the commercials being taught. And this, the commercials have always been this is the vision of the good life. Buy this product, drive this car, wear these clothes, and then you'll be happy or whatever. So what does it look like? And, and in doing so, we took uh, a look and we're diving into a long passage of Jesus's version of, um, of the good life. We, we said that Eastlake has been a church since the very beginning of a community of people trying to get together uh, as regularly as possible to discuss and discern what the way of Jesus might look like uh, in 2020 and, and what, it, what would it look like to do things the way that Jesus would do them. And um, so, so how appropriate for us then to say, all right, if this is what he said on a mountaintop as he kind of presented himself as sort of a new Moses, a new law, a new ethic, a new way of connecting with God, a new way of being um, good people or uh, to live a good life, um, why wouldn't we not look at that again uh, in light of kind of this stuff. I wonder if we would learn new things. I wonder if previous things that we thought were kind of out of bounds or out of touch with reality or they just wouldn't work in society. Uh, and now we are, are living things out that are like, well, that'll never happen. We'll, we'll never do that. You know, there won't be live sports for like two months. And all of a sudden there's not. And so I wonder if in light of the... Um, all of the ups and downs and all of the, well, we've never seen this before. Would we read Matthew chapter five through chapter seven a little bit differently? It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the five discourse teachings of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Um, we said Matthew's kind of an interesting take on the gospel or the, the Jesus story um, because it's the first of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that show up in the New Testament. And it's by far the most structured of the four takes on Jesus's life. So if you are a structured reader, and by that, I mean, if you loved uh, John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, if you loved Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, if every article that you read uh, like needs to have bullet points or numbers associated with them, or four things you need to know this week, or two things you have to do tomorrow, or that sort of clickbait-ish, I wonder what's going to happen uh, with this if I don't read this and I need it to be really bullet pointed out, you would probably love the book of Matthew, um, because we said that he kind of lays it all out in five different teaching discourses, big blocks of Jesus' teaching. We're discussing the first one, Matthew chapter five through chapter seven. And even then within that block of teaching, there's breakdowns. Um, he starts it off with the Beatitudes, which are basically the nine Beatitudes to kind of change your life. Uh, and then in, in after he delivers those, we talked about those in week one and week two. Last week we said it was sort of like this, the six ethics of being truly whole. Uh, and today the three practices, religious practices that you must get right. So like if that kind of resonates with you and I, it's not probably as simplified as you 
you, you may have read through these before and thought, I've never read it that way. I, I understand. But in the way that we've been kind of breaking it down, looking at it, it kind of plays out in that way. So it's maybe not as simplified as I'm making it sound, but I don't think that I'm way off on this thing. And it sort of almost feels a little clickbait-ish because we're so, we're so, we've been so inundated with the four things you need to know now. Like that's just what the Times and, and the Herald and all of these things do so that we'll read it and we go, well, I can't miss out on, on this sort of thing. And then they end all the taglines with, you know, you'll never believe who got them wrong, right? And even, even with this, it's like the three religious practices you need to know now. And gosh, you'll never believe who got them wrong. Hint, it's the Pharisees. It always is, right? I'm giving it away uh, with all of that. But that's Jesus' kind of way of, of doing these things. And, and we said um, last week, he introduces this idea of greater righteousness, or um, what, what you're being called to is a heightened sense of holiness or awareness of the king, incoming kingdom of heaven, or you got to do things better. You're not doing things good enough, right? Which is like hard again to hear. His, his phrasing was, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, right? Which is, I said, I said last week, in this time, that feels, we're, we're ultra sensitive to this because we've been so exposed to all of the moms who are killing it at homeschooling, all of the people who are killing it at quarantine projects. And they're like, I just built this tiny home with a couple of bricks that were left over in my garage for the last you know, month that I've been at home. And you're like, I, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And then we dive back into Jesus and he's teaching this thing. He's going, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the most religious people that you know, there's going to be no room for you. And it can, it can feel like, oh my gosh, again, over overwhelming. And I, I really tried to say, I, I don't think, I, I think that we're miss, missing this. He's talking about a, a level of happiness that comes through a, a means of total wholeness, a happiness and wholeness in life. He wants you to be happy and whole. And he talks about how people have been doing and living out these external forms of righteousness, but doing it with ulterior motives, doing it like to please the appearance of other people, doing it with like half of themselves and then half of it's not. Later on, he would go into like these of the Pharisees. And he's like, you've cleaned the outside of the cup, but the inside is so dirty. You do all these things for show. You post all of these things about how you stand with this and you do this and you do this and you do this. And it just doesn't shape anything about your actual life. Like nothing else changes. You do something so that other people will see it. And it doesn't, that's the only motivation for why you're doing this. It's a big discussion of motives that gets really, really difficult to look at. But yet that's exactly what we're going to do today dive into this, the, like the motives question of some of the external religious practices. Because he does say, he's going to go in and say, there are things that you should do. There are practices you should keep. There are um, activities or, or rhythms that I want you to engage in. I think it will help remind you and shape you into the type of person that you're called to be. But don't ever forget why you're doing these things. So, um, we're going to start in chapter six today. Um, so we finished off with chapter five, chapter six, verse one. It sort of serves as an introduction to this thing. And he says this, this is the, he's going to provide a summary. Then he's going to go into practical examples and then one kind of summarizing statement or sort of uh, probably better an introduction or a thesis. Here's where we're going to go. Here's the meat of it. Uh, and then here's what I just kind of told you. You've, you've, written a, you've written a school paper before. You know how this whole format works. All right, be careful that you don't perform this righteousness. He's just got on them and said, you know, here's, do, you know, do things whole. Here's six things of, of, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. Don't perform these righteousness for the purpose of being seen by others. 
For if this is the case, you will have no reward with your father who is in heaven. So there's two pieces of the puzzle with this thing that he's going to address in each of these examples. Uh, One is this question of motives, uh, this uh, external tension sort of thing. There's going to be something that's going to be inside of you. It's going to be this external, internal tension of you're doing things externally, but are you doing them from there? And there's this continuity of this greater righteousness that's ever in play. And he wants us to know this really interesting, fun fact of life, that no matter how good you get at doing this religious obedience thing, no matter how good you get at being a follower of Christ or a moralistic person, or I'm just trying to be a good person and live a good life, because maybe you're not religious and you're watching this, and that's fine, and and this is just another thing that might be helpful for you. Um, One of his pieces of advice for his audience that day, and I think for us today as well, is that there's something that will always linger involved in us doing good things. And it's this, there's the ever present temptation to be righteous so that others will see it and think well of the doer, AKA us. This will never ever be absent from your activity of being a good person. And you might be sitting there going, Brent, you're being cynical in this way. I understand this is called a question of motives. Am I doing this because it's simply a nice thing to do, aka altruism, or am I trying to influence the way that other people might see me? And Jesus is saying, Brent, uh, or sorry, he's saying that to me too, but he's he's trying to say this, you will never escape this. This is an ever-present temptation, no matter how long and how, what kind of a pathway you keep doing all of these things, no matter if you're 50, 80, whatever, um, it's just, it's always going to be there. And you might be saying, Brent, you're just too cynical. I'm just saying, these are not my words. I'm just trying to tell you what Matthew remembered about what Jesus was always talking about. And that's what we said this whole uh, passage thing was. Matthew sitting down 20, 30, 40 years after the fact, and thinking to himself, I need to write down the things that I learned from Jesus over the years. And he puts it down in this format. And, he, and, and I think it was not a day that he was on a mountaintop doing this. Uh, but just like when I, when I recall him teaching to people, this came up. And this comes up over and over again in this passage. It's so important, this question of motives, that when you're doing it, there's always going to be something in the back of your mind going, am I doing this because I really want to do it? Or am I doing this because I'm trying to manage the impression I'm making in the minds of other people? What are the motives behind this? You may not have called it righteousness before, this righteous decision, but this donation or this time or this thing or this, I, I, I want to do something so that people will think, well, God, he's a good person. Look, look, at, look at him living selflessly. Look at, him, look at her living selflessly. Look at them making a decision that's not, this just not benefiting themselves but for other people. And then he goes into, there's two parts, as I mentioned this earlier, um, a question of rewards. Am I doing this just because of some reward feature? Am I a mercenary for rewards in this area? And I know our defense immediately would be, Brent, I'm not shallow like that. I don't buy people birthday gifts so that they will feel obligated to buy me a birthday gift of the same or equitable value, right? Um, And I, I understand that, look, I believe you, or at least I think it's in my best interest to say that I believe you. Um, Either way, like, look at me. I I believe you. The problem is, like, Jesus just doesn't, right? He's saying that this is going to be part of your psyche for the foreseeable future. So why do we do religious practices that we think that we should? How much do we factor rewards into our motives? 
This is a part of, these are some questions that I think get stirred up in a study of this passage. And then has that changed for the better or worse in light of this pandemic? Because I think six months ago, we would have read that and been like, um, uh, yeah, that's still, I, don't, I don't think the takeaway has changed all that much, but I do wonder if the intensity has. The question has been always the same. Why do we do religious practices that we think that we should? And what, what am, am I so motivated by rewards that it's just like this, um, this, like this game that I'm trying to earn things or whatever? And then the big filter that we are looking at this week is, has that increased or decreased? Has that been changed at all? Has it ebbed and flowed because of this kind of state of the circumstances that we're currently going through? Are we more open to motives? Are we more open to rewards or future rewards or whatever? So... He introduces this, introduce, uh, this introductory comment, this thesis or whatever, this here's what I'm going to talk about. And then, as we'd see if you read through this this week, um, he's going to go into three practical examples. He spends a, a considerable amount of time on the first one, which is this idea of almsgiving, or I put in parentheses just generosity, because almsgiving was like not um, gifts to the temple or the church at that time. It would be gifts to the poor. It would be above and beyond, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and then also uh, the idea of prayer and fasting. Um, in the middle of prayer, he goes into the Lord's Prayer. That's where we get probably the example of the Lord's Prayer that if you have it memorized or had memorized it as a kid or whatever, that's probably, it shows up in Luke too, but most of us have memorized the Matthew version. It's very familiar. It actually shows up right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of um, if you were looking at it, uh, they call it chiastic teaching, but if you were looking at like a a pyramid, uh, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, and then within chapter six, it's like right in the middle. It's supposed to be the, the big point. This is what he's trying to say, like the Lord's Prayer takes this massive piece of this, and then it goes into the fasting piece. Now, instead of diving into all three, um, which we could, but I feel like in light of the pandemic, the first one is perhaps the most obviously uh, related. So we're going to dive into what he says with this, and then he provides us with a formula of sorts. Um, The formula is basically this, uh, when you do these things, when, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, refrain from doing this. And he gives us alternative, you know, don't do this. Um, because, and then he has this reveal or this apocalyptic moment, <laughs> like we said last week, uh, this reveal of the hidden motives behind this. When you give, don't make trumpeting sounds. Like that just shows that you're out for like awareness of other people, that they, you, you're concerned about what they think of you. Instead, do this. And here's why you should do this. He does this formula with all three things, with giving, uh, with prayer, and with fasting. So um, just take that and kind of see that, again, Matthew's working this sort of formulaic button points, you know, bullet points, all this kind of stuff, um, making things kind of real organized in this way. So we're going to dive into the first one and, and extrapolate it and go from there. All right. Verse two, therefore, when you're giving to help the needy, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and in the streets, so that they might receive glory from others. Assuredly, I tell you. This is their only reward. But when you're giving to help the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing such that your giving to the needy is done in secret and your father who sees what happens in secret will reward you. He walks us through the formula. When you give, don't do it like this. Here's what that means when you do it like that. Instead, try this. And then as a result, the rewards in heaven will be uh, given to you. So for the remainder of our time, I want to dive into what I'm calling today the optics of generosity. The optics of generosity. Have you ever been to a fundraiser or a nonprofit doing charitable work in the community where business, like an event for those types of businesses, where businesses 
make a donation, for-profit businesses make a donation to nonprofit businesses that is clearly motivated by marketing rather than we'd really like to get behind this good work that you're doing in the community. Or let me put it another way. Um, have you ever been to any fundraising event? <laughs> All right. Um, I, and listen, I don't blame businesses for and companies for investing in marketing. I mean, that's what makes the world go round. I get it. But it gets a little bit sticky when the donation receipt comes with the assurance that the company logo will be, be displayed prominently on the front page of the program for that you know, fundraising events brochure or whatever. And by the way, if you do 50 more dollars, we'll put it in color, right? Um, I, we get that that is happening. We don't sound a trumpet because that would be a bit uh, fancy. It would be a bit, to use a, a fun word, ostentatious. That'll show up a little bit later. I had to look it up too, don't worry. It'd be ostentatious of us to do so. But I don't even think trumpets were involved in Jesus' day. I mean, I, I've read some commentaries about how they kind of made a scene about it, but I didn't see them go, you know, I'm giving $100 or whatever. Like, I don't think that, I think he's using rhetoric. I think he's using imagery, hyperbole, whatever, to illustrate the means by which we go. So trumpets aren't involved, but what's our version of trumpets? It's all of these other things. And that feels a bit too much. I mean, we don't want to be that overt about it. We're, we're smart enough to be like, if trumpets are involved, I'm out. But I do want the logo. I want it positioned, and brochures didn't pay me to do this or whatever, but um, I want it positioned in such a way like this doesn't help us. This does, though. If you could just kind of make sure that whatever event we go to, that I don't like my sign over here. I'd prefer it on the stage, or I'd prefer it, I prefer it elsewhere, especially in, in, when it's involved. Anyways, we've all seen the people who give generously with obvious ulterior motives, and we think to ourselves internally, how shallow kind of are they? And if we're religious, we might even add the tagline, well, they've received their reward, right? They've received their reward because you're so biblical and whatever. And when we do that, we think somehow that we've avoided the ever-present temptation to be righteous so that others will see it and think well of the doer. We see it done corporately or we see it done on a big scene with lots more zeros behind it and we think that's ridiculous. And we think in pointing out sometimes the extremism on the spectrum of generosity with a uh, ulterior motives um, that somehow we are able to ignore our own personal means of doing so. Listen, it's easy to point out corporate shortcomings uh, and to not take into effect personal shortcomings to say, well, we don't do it to that extent. Of course, you don't have the means to do it to that extent, but you still do it and it's still an issue. And Jesus's words of wisdom and a vision of the good life, and this is a much better way to live, probably still apply to you and to me in this um, way. In a time where every company and every brand is currently trying to find a way to convince you via unprecedented times, productions probably, that in these uncertain times, we're figuring out new ways to hashtag give back, right? Uh, because we're in this together even when we're not alone. Is that not every commercial that you've ever watched for the last 90 days? Um, and it's fine. Like I, we were watching it when they first started coming out and Kylie and, and I were watching these things and, and I made some sort of cynical comment cause I'm just cynical a little bit by nature. And she goes, yeah, but I think it's, I, I like it. I like that they're doing something. I like that. It's not like we're still trying to sell you cars at like aggressive financing, like an awareness 
that sort of things have changed and, um, you know, uh, it's not just tooting our own horn, but talking about, you know, global community and, and, you know, whatever, and getting through things. And I understand all of that. And I, I can, so there's like this tension of, yes, it's good, but yes, it's not, you just can't be like, it, it still deserves, it still deserves an eye of, yeah, but what's actually happening behind the scenes in this way. Um, all of these people saying we've been doing good things and we feel the need to tell you about them. And the response, again, either my wife or maybe you watching this go, but Brent, isn't it great that they've donated a million dollars to COVID relief? And I would say, absolutely, but isn't it at all ironic that you know about it? Um, you know nothing else about their budget. Um, you don't know that it's more or less than what they give typically, <laughs> right? Um, you have no idea what percentage of their operating budget that actually constitutes. A million dollars sounds like a ton to you, but when you're talking about a budget of, I don't know how many millions or billions of dollars, and it's like a fraction of a percent, is it really all that impressive anymore in this way? Maybe more so than ever, the, should this awkward tension be ever, uh, evident, Maybe right now, more than ever, this awkward tension shows up and uh, at least deserves our attention. And what do we do with the words of Jesus? And he says, this is a much better way to live. Um, when you do these types of things, why not tell nobody about it and just rely on this? And lest you think, by the way, lest you think that we and uh, me personally and, and us corporately here as a church are exempt from this sort of pageantry. I can't wait most of the time to show you photos of us sorting food or handing out bags or serving at Union Gospel Mission or highlighting how much money we gave away annually to nonprofits outside of the walls of our community, uh, over 10%, by the way, which you can look at in our state of the church. I cannot wait to print those booklets for you and be like, here's what we did, here's what we did. And, or, or when these things happen, I'm like, make sure to take photos. I'm always texting the people who are, who are hosting these awesome Wear Love events. And I'm like, make sure to take photos, take photos. We got to post these things. And I know I could couch it, right? Uh, and here's the thing. Like, we're probably going to keep doing that, right? That doesn't stop. Uh, and I could couch it in terms of, well, I want to expose you, all of you to the various different ways that you could hashtag give yourself away. And that would be partly true and valid. I really do think it is the best way to kind of um, follow in the footsteps of Jesus is figure out ways to give yourself away. I think, it's, uh, I think it's just as or if not more important than sitting down for like a Bible study and being like, well, I wonder what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter whatever. Um, I think this idea of living it out in a certain way is is like powerful and incredibly challenging and life forming. And we said last week, the importance of reading a book, not for information, but formatively. How is this shaping me? Is this making me into a better person? And if we take this sort of conceptual teaching of Jesus, what is this forming me? What kind of a person is this forming me into being? Somebody who lives with this tension of, am I doing this so that people will see it? Or am I doing this because I genuinely care about it? And that will never go away. Now, how many times we choose, I'm just going to do it and I'm just going to trust a reward or whatever. There will always be a self-awareness piece in this. A question of why am I doing this really? And I shouldn't be surprised about it. Jesus said that would be the case almost 2,000 years ago. And he must have talked about it so much that Matthew felt it was important to include in his things I remembered most about what Jesus taught there is the ever-present temptation to be righteous so that others will see it and think well of the doer. Or in a more exact form of his words, be careful that you don't perform this righteousness for the purpose of being seen by others. 
And again, let's take it out of the corporate world and read it formatively like we talked about last week. What role do the optics of generosity play in my personal acts of generosity? What role do the optics, of, I like the optics of this. I like how this looks for other people. This looks really good. This makes me look really good. This makes us as a company look really good. Let's make sure we do it in this way. And those are always going to be involved. We're figuring that out even within ourselves and how, how we do this. Let me, let me like clear the air. Like the board constantly is thinking about the optics of how we handle finances, how we handle this pandemic, how we do this, how we do this. It's a very ever-present concern, but it's always, it's going on corporately, but it's also going on here too. Am I posting this? Am I doing this? Am I letting people know um, that I, 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 I want to link my Strava app, my running app to my Instagram, just to kind of show people once in a while, hey, it's cool, got out, not being lazy, right? Uh, I, I want to show these quarantine projects to be like, I just didn't sit on my thumbs the whole time, please. No, 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 I, I've been actively busy in, in making these things, the optics of it in this way. The contrast made between the hypocrites and what is expected of people who are trying to live in the way of Jesus is the goal or, or the inner motive of generosity should be reward from God rather than glory from others. To be generous in secret, how does one do that? Luther offered, uh, Martin Luther offered advice on this a long time ago during the Protestant Reformation. He writes this in his kind of version of the Sermon on the Mount. It is about singleness of heart. It means that the heart is not ostentatious. See, that's where it was from. That's where I had to go look it up and then I used it again. Anyways, um, it means that the heart is not ostentatious or desirous of gaining honor and reputation from it, but is moved to contribute freely regardless of whether it makes an impression and gains the praise of the people or whether everyone despises it and profanes it. I do it regardless of whether it makes an impression or whether they don't like it or whatever. I'm choosing to do this. And here's the summarizing verse or passage for this section. So Jesus says, um, here's the thing. Here's the three options. I, I, I skipped over the prayer and the fasting one. You can do those on your own, but the formula is going to stay the same and the optics of it are going to stay the same. And then he says basically this in verse 20 through 21, but store up yourself up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. Man, there's so much packed into this. Like every week I feel like when, I, when we've talked about passages from this, I think even if you're not really a church person, you're like, man, I know that verse. I've heard that verse before. That's, these are all right here. And here's how they fit together. He just talked about religious practices and the optics involved in them and the reward that comes as a result of doing them properly. And then he begins to go right into this idea of treasure. Where is your treasure at? Where are you putting value at? What, what, what for you is the purpose of this? What reward are you trying to target in this way? And basically, there are two types of rewards available. One is fine and good, to be thought of well by others. I mean, who doesn't want this? One is fine and good, to be thought of well. I want to be thought of well. I want this church in this community to be thought of well. I want when people who are not religious, who think of this church, and if they ever heard the news that for whatever reason we had to shut down, they would be bombed, even though they never went here. And they'd be like, ah, they were beneficial presence in our community and we will miss them when they are gone or whatever. And I'm not saying we're going anywhere. I'm just saying that it's fine to be thought of well and to do things so that we'll be thought of well. But there is a greater reward, but one is better. Pay attention to which reward feels the most important because that speaks volumes about your heart. 
That's what Jesus is going to say. Listen, there's going to be two rewards in this, external and internal and, and, and future and whatever. And, 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 that, and one's fine. It's fine. It's great. Uh, live your life. Do your thing. As a company, I'd want you to be generous in the community to people and to nonprofits. Uh, I want you as a personal, you know, to be generous in your time and your money. I want you to pray. I do. I want you to pray. I want you to fast. I want you to take moments. Uh, and the fasting piece was important that, I, that as I studied this week, there's like a kind of a little side note. Uh, we'll probably go, go into a little bit more on the podcast this week, but um, that fasting w- was not about requesting something from God as it was uh, as much um, uh, being like providing sort of a sacred uh, moment for that kind of thing that happened. Usually it was done after the fact to be like, you interacted, you did something for me and I never want to forget it. And so I'm going to, I'm going to participate in this more on that this week uh, in the podcast, but that's important. I want you to do all of those things. And sometimes there's going to be some external optics that come into that, but please know what's the most important thing and focus on what is the most important thing. Cause it's going to reveal a bunch about your heart motives, the seat of your emotions, the core of your being. What does it say about your heart? And this is, um, a lot of people would say, um, you know, skeptics or, or um, outside philosophers or whatever would be like, ah, oh, this is the problem with religion and Christianity in particular. Like, especially Nietzsche and, and, and all the other philosopher skeptics. This is the problem with religion, is that they deny, why deny yourself the reward of the present for the potential, or see also questionable, if you don't believe it exists, reward of the hereafter? Um, why deny yourself happiness now for some sort of a sense of like future reward that may or may not occur? And it's a legit claim if the heavenly reward option is in question. So then the question becomes, do you actually believe? Do you actually believe? Brent, are you saying that my unheralded, uncelebrated, but I'm okay with that, generosity is a testament of my confidence that there's more to all of this than just all of this? That my generosity, my prayers, my temporary denial of nourishment or things that I think are are good is a means of pursuing a heavenly reward over and often in spite of an immediate reward. Listen, I'm not saying that. But Jesus is. I, I, I I would not take it upon myself to say that. I'm simply a messenger of how Jesus said, this is the best way to do things. This is the way in which I would do them. And we see over and over and over again, Jesus being good and doing good things um, and not expecting any sort of, not drawing a crowd, attention everybody, I'm about to do something amazing, please gather around, but doing it and it's almost, and I know it got recorded because how else would we have seen it, but it's almost as if he did these things, not, he didn't, he didn't say, Matthew, make sure to write this down. John, I'm about to do something amazing. I'm about to heal somebody. Uh, I'm about to do this prayer. He would go off by himself and do these things. And maybe they caught little bits of information. I imagine that we only get about 10, 20, 30% maybe of what Jesus actually did in terms of his generosity, in terms of his healing, in terms of his prayer, in terms of his fasting. We see glimpses of it, but every single time it's like there had to be, there's, there's more to that iceberg underneath the water that we're just not seeing that makes so much more sense uh, of this than that. More than ever, we ought to be reminded during a time like this that we are constantly being told a story, all right? We are constantly being told a story. In advertising, it's the story of here's what it takes to be a good life. Here's, here's this. Here's what, here's what we're doing. Or in commercials from you know, external companies, here's how generous we are. Here's how thoughtful we are. Here's how good we've been handling this crisis. Our administration is handling it fantastic. We're the best ever, right? We're constantly being told a story on all sides of our being. There is an ever-present temptation to be righteous so that others will see it and think well of the doer. And there are two rewards available. One is fine and good. 
But Jesus wants to try and teach us and invite us to understand and to realize and to live out with skin in the game that one is actually better. So may we be the type of people who, um, whenever escaping that like, motive question, but may we in our minds and uh, in those moments think, yeah, there's two rewards available. One's fine and good, but one's better. And may we choose the one that is obviously better.